Well, church family, take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Isaiah chapter 9 as we're going to again read verses 6 and 7 and look at some of the surrounding context as well. Well, as we get there today, let's talk about one of the most overlooked parts of the nativity story. And that's the journey that Mary and Joseph had to make from Nazareth to Bethlehem. It's a 90-mile trek. And in those days, as you know, you didn't just call an Uber. You couldn't just rent a van. Instead, you had to make it on foot. Maybe you had the help of a barnyard animal. We don't know. Uh, But my wife and I are avid hikers. And so we love hiking, getting outdoors, getting away from cell phones. Can I get an amen? It's just great to be in the great outdoors, to be reminded of the vastness of God's creation and be reminded how small you are to get a little fresh air and some exercise away from the stress of it all. But let's be mindful that in the first century, hiking wasn't something you did for fun. It's something you did because you had to. So can you imagine eight months pregnant, having to take a 90 mile hike in the Middle East? They would have left Nazareth, went to a city called Bet-Shean. Then they would have headed down to the Jordan River Valley. They would have ended there in the Jordan River Valley at the north end of the Dead Sea, one of the lowest places on earth. Then they would have turned right and gone up to Jericho and up to Jerusalem, which is in the hill country. It's why it says in the Gospel of Luke, Mary and Joseph had to go up, up to Jerusalem and up ultimately to Bethlehem, which would have been the last little part of the trek down the hill, the five miles into the city of Bethlehem. Now, be mindful, no rest areas, no drive-through restaurants, no hotels, no KOA campgrounds. What you and I would do if we had to hike for a week in the Middle East is we would go to REI and we would buy a bunch of gear. As the old saying goes, we would spend a small fortune to live like a homeless person for a week but they had no such option. Instead, that was the journey that Mary and Joseph had to make on foot. And if you think about it, it's a fitting metaphor. Hiking is, walking is for our journey in life. It's full of ups and downs, peaks and valleys. So much of it is about endurance, about putting one foot in front of the other. And Joseph was committed to get to the town in which he had to be registered. And so following God's blueprint, what God had laid out for them, they made that trek faithfully. In the same way, I believe, uh, hiking is a beautiful picture for life. In the same way, mountains, like the mountain range that you see before you on the screen, is a fitting word picture for God's word that comes to us through the prophets. You see, God, because he loves his people, sees the big picture. If you and I were hiking on those mountains, we would only see the little spot that was right in front of us. But God not only sees the whole mountain, he sees the entire mountain range. He watches over us from outside of time and space. And so God loves his his people. He loves us enough that he gives us his word. Specifically, he gave us the prophets. And one of the ways to understand biblical prophecy, what we're about to read from Isaiah today, is to remember that the words that God gave the prophets had immediacy. So that very front mountain, it meant something to those people. But they also had the ability, the spirit-inspired ability to see off into the distance, to see the truths that God would want them to communicate. And so for the nation of Israel, as this promise is delivered hundreds and hundreds of years before the Christ child is born, God gives Isaiah the ability to see that in a dark and dangerous time, there was hope coming in the future. 
there was a stunning prophecy about the Messiah who was to come, about a champion, a king, who would redeem God's people forever. We're gonna read those words today. Would you stand with me in honor of God's word? Isaiah chapter nine, verses six and seven. For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Pray with me on this Christmas Eve. Lord Jesus, thank you that on the journey of life, we can have the confidence that you are watching over your word in order to fulfill it. God, today, our hearts are filled with hope because into the darkness, a light dawned. That light is Jesus. And today we celebrate him. And it's in his name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. amen. You may be seated. So this section of the book of Isaiah is called the Emmanuel chapters or the Emmanuel book. You see, Isaiah is often referred to by theologians as the Mount Everest of biblical prophecy because there are literally dozens of prophecies about the Messiah to come that are woven into these pages. And so, right, a few chapters into the book, after calling out God's people for their lack of justice, calling out God's people for their lack of devotion to him, there becomes this focus on one called Emmanuel, God with us. Well, how is this going to work? What is this going to be like? Well, the first thing we see in this text today is that God makes a promise during a very dark time. Our first point this morning is a promise that is made. And then in the deep, deep darkness, God's word speaks. In the previous chapter, chapter eight, it ends like this. In Isaiah chapter eight, verse 22, it says, they will look towards the earth and they will see only distress, darkness, and the gloom of affliction, and they will be driven into thick darkness. Merry Christmas, everybody. But what we love about the Bible is it's not sentimental, it's honest. And so what was the condition of 8th century Judah to whom these prophecies were given? Well, number one, they were trusting in themselves instead of Yahweh. The name Isaiah literally means Yahweh is salvation. And instead of trusting in him, God's people had put their trust in anything or anyone but him. They'd put their trust, King Ahaz had put his trust in political alliances with unholy pagan nations like Egypt and Assyria and Babylon when God said, trust only in me. They had put their trust in their politics instead of their God. Not only that, they had put their trust in themselves, in their ingenuity, in their ability to solve problems and figure it all out. Again, when God called for trust only in him, they had become guilty of idolatry, of trusting in themselves. I ask you, church family, this morning, does this sound like 8th century Judah or 21st century America? 
The reality is, is we face the same kind of darkness, the same kind of cycles and patterns of sin. And so God is honest with the people in this moment. He said, if you look to the earth, if we look to only the resources that we have, if we look only within ourselves, then we are stuck, we are doomed. But into that darkness, God speaks a stunning promise. Verse two, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. God promises to turn the lights on. If you've ever been in a room that's dark and somebody comes in and flips on the lights, all of a sudden it's disorienting for a moment. But once your eyes adjust, you can see everything more clearly. And that's what God promises to do. This is pure grace. It's not the result of anything the people have the ability to do. But it is God's own gracious doing that he is going to turn on the lights in a dark time. He's going to restore joy to the people. Verse three, you have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time, as they rejoice when dividing spoils. Four times, the prophet says, God is going to restore your joy. If you look at our world around us today, we seriously lack joy. What a promise that God can restore our joy. That's deeper than just circumstantial happiness. It means that we have a deep and rooted trust in him and what only he can accomplish. Not only that, there's more. Verse three, God is going to end oppression for you have shattered the oppressive yoke on the rod of their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. The story referring to the story of Gideon in the Old Testament, that God in a surprising way is going to use an underdog to shatter oppression. And not only that, war will cease, verse five, for every trampling boot of battle and the bloody garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. Wouldn't you love to live in a world in which there is no war? On this Christmas Eve, we're reminded that the largest war in Europe continues to rage since World War II in Ukraine. There's war again in the Middle East. Came across the writings of a journalist named Charles Hedges, who back in the mid-2000s decided to do a study, how much of human history have we been at war? He defined war as an active armed conflict that cost at least a thousand lives. He surveyed 3,400 years of history. And do you know what he discovered? There were only 268 years in which there is not war recorded. That's 92% of human history that we know about. We have been at war. The thought of a king, the light of the world ending war, well, that makes a weary world rejoice. Amen? God says this, this is the promise that I make. How is that promise going to be kept? Well, that's our second point this morning, is this. It's going to be kept via a prince. Will God bring armies? Will God split open the heavens and hurl thunderbolts down to say, y'all behave? No, God is going to do something very unexpected. This promise will be fulfilled by a child. Isn't that God's way of doing things? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, God chooses what seems foolish to shame the wise. He chooses the weak to shame the strong. He chooses what is lowly and despised so that no man can boast and so that he gets the glory. As the song goes, it's a strange way to save the world, but it's God's way. And so listen to these words. For a child 
This child will be fully human. He will be born for who, church? Us. This son, referring to the prophecy about the son of man, meaning he is also fully God, will be given to who? Us. Think about it. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. But into the darkness of human history, God would step with a child who would be a gift to us, fully man, fully God. The government will be on his shoulders, meaning he will take responsibility for all the stuff that we don't want to take responsibility for. He will be the answer to all the things that we don't have answers for. And he's going to carry some pretty big titles. Now, I remember when we were expecting our first child, my wife and I, during date night, we would go to Barnes and Noble. We would grab those baby name books and we would go through endless baby names, looking, searching for just the right name for our firstborn. There was a girl, we landed on the name Eliza. We love that name. We liked the idea that she was our firstborn child, so she was bringing joy to us. She was the firstborn baby on both sides, joy to our families. Tanya had a grandmother who had the middle name Grace, so we liked the name Grace, so we couldn't land on a single name. So we gave our little six-pound, nine-ounce baby girl the big name, Eliza Joy Grace Strother. It's a big name for a little girl. How about this name for a child? Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. That's quite the baby name. Let's think about what these words mean for a moment. Anybody need a good counselor these days? This king, this light, will be a wonderful counselor. The best in the history of the world with all supernatural wisdom. Not only that, he will be the almighty God, meaning he is not only all wise, but also all powerful. He will be the eternal Father, it means the source or the author of eternity. In other words, if you want heaven, if you want forever, then you have to go through him in order to achieve that. But that word father means that we're part of the family. That once we're reconciled to God in Christ Jesus, that you and I get to be sons and daughters of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Prince of peace. Now in that era, Princes, the, the son of a king, would be the administrator of the kingdom. That's how he learned to rule. So what that means is as we lit the peace candle earlier and we talked about this biblical concept of shalom, is that Jesus will be the administrator of shalom. He will be the bringer of human flourishing. He will be the bringer of all good things. All good gifts will come from him. Now that is quite the title for a little bundle of joy, isn't it? And it would be absurd to label any child, to put those kind of expectations on that child unless that child was God himself, God in the flesh. That's how God chose to keep this promise. He is going to be the heir of David. God doesn't forget his word, not a single promise that he made, and God's zeal will accomplish this. In other words, it's God's own predetermined love, his own grace and mercy that gives us this. But Isaiah saw something else as well, brothers and sisters. Isaiah saw that this conquering king, this wonderful counselor, this mighty God would also be the suffering servant. And so we need to never forget 
our third point this morning, the price that was paid for us, that this child came to fulfill a mission. And Isaiah foretold this as well. Flip over in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 53, and you can read about it. We call this the fourth servant song. But as we gather around our nativity sets, as we read the Christmas story this morning, let's not forget that the shadow of the cross falls across the manger. Because, as we all know, freedom, peace, these things are not free. Instead, this, this is what our Messiah, this is what our King came to do. He grew up before him, Isaiah 53, 2, like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground, he didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him. No appearance that we should desire him. But he was despised and rejected by men. A man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sickness and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he, he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. And we are healed by his wounds. You see, this is what this king came to accomplish. This is what he came to do. And he fulfilled it. He fulfilled that promise. Matthew shows us clearly the connection between this prophecy and the ministry of Jesus. Matthew chapter 4. And this is our fourth point this morning. A prophet fulfilled, a promise fulfilled that a light has dawned. At the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, right after his baptism and his temptation in the wilderness, it says in verse 15 of Matthew 4, land of Zebulun, land of Natali, along the road by the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who live in the darkness have seen a great light. And for those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Matthew explicitly connects this prophecy with Jesus. And when Jesus inaugurated that ministry, it meant that the light had dawned. We can't look to the earth for the answers. We can't look to ourselves. We look to the light of the world. And it's why on this Christmas Eve and every Christmas Eve, we light the Christ candle. Because empires will come and empires will go. Kings and kingdoms will pass away. But there is a light that came to the darkness. His name is Jesus, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And today, as we light the Christ candle, it is a reminder to all of us that God made a promise and that God kept that promise. And that king came to give his life for us so that we could be that light that shines from Christ to one another and to the greatest needs of the world. Only God could accomplish this. Only Jesus did this. So as our ushers come forward this morning, would you take your candle as we light our candles from the Christ candle and rejoice that our Savior has come.
Take a moment to look around the room. Let this be a reminder to us of what the prophet foretold and what came true. That God made a promise to step into our thick darkness. That he fulfilled that promise by sending his one and only son. So that we wouldn't have to dwell in the darkness any longer. But so that we could live and love in the light. The light of the one who's all grace, who's all mercy, who's all truth. If you need to know that light today, that's why we're here. Myself and our team will be in the Welcome Center and we invite you to come have a conversation with us about what it means to know Jesus, the light of the world. And so this moment is a picture for us of what should take place 365 days a year. The light of Christ that has come to us now shines through us. Brentwood Baptist Church family, Merry Christmas. Jesus is the light of the world. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You are dismissed. Merry Christmas.